Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. I want to preach to you a message called Don't Get Lost in the Process. Don't get lost in the process. How many of you, if I could ask you this question, how many of you has God ever given you a promise? You know that promise, right? You have a promise on your life. You know that there's a reason that, that you're living and breathing and there's destiny and purpose that drip off of you and there's promises, promises that he has fulfilled, right? There's some things that God's fulfilled to you, but yet there's also promises that have been undone and you've been in anxious anticipation, right? Like the persistent widow that's knocking on the door. Well, God, hello, it's me again, right? You've been there? Every single one of us, even young, whether they know it or not, are, there's promises on our lives. And a lot of times we don't understand the depth, we don't understand the height, we don't understand the distance of that promise. And so many times we get so caught up, hear me, I'm going to preach real to you tonight. We get so caught up by how we feel, what we're going through, and what's going on around us. And when I say going on around us, I'm talking about in our world, in our family, in our workplace, in our lives, in our community. We get so caught up by how we feel what we're going through and what's going on around us that it causes us to lose sight of what's really going on. Let me revisit last night for a moment. Do you remember when the women, right? The women that went and they, if you didn't, if you weren't here last night, I talked about how God gave us a gift of nothing and he left it in the tomb, right? There was nothing in the tomb. And, and that's one of the greatest things that Jesus ever delivered us. He gave us the gift of nothing. And what is nothing? Nothing to stop us, nothing to hold us back, nothing to hinder us, right? No sin was in the tomb, no sickness in the tomb. But do you remember the widows, right? There's this confusion. Jesus is gone. Jesus is dead. How does God die, right? How does God get arrested? Because of what was going on at that moment, they lost sight of what God, Jesus, had said. And so they go to the tomb to mourn the death, to mourn the loss, to basically to help themselves feel better, to try to navigate what they were going through and how they were feeling. And, and, and they, they go to this tomb and they bring in incense. And incense was to mourn or remember the dead. They were more interested in remembering what they had lost instead of what they had found. And so the women go to the tomb and they find the stone removed, not going to re-preach it to you, but they go inside and they find the tomb is empty, that Jesus is no longer there, but there are two angels. And, and, and the angel said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? And here's the point I want to make by bringing this back up. Do you remember what the angel said? Did you forget what he told you when he was alive and when he was with you? Did you forget that he said that he would be turned into the hands of sinners and he would be crucified and on the third day he would be raised to life? Now, I don't know if they forgot it. It doesn't mention that they went, whoa, 
like we did. We totally forgot that he said that. But I do believe that they did lose track of time, if nothing else. They forgot what day it was because their grief was so, was so heavy on them that they forgot that that was the third day. And they went to go find a dead body. But Jesus, he has never stopped fulfilling his promises. And if he makes you a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And not even death or, 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 or the grave is going to stop him. And it says this, and then they remembered. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, Jesus did say that. Oh yeah, Jesus promised that. I wonder how many things that God has spoken to us and we have forgotten because of what we've gone through because of what we're feeling and what's going on around us. Can I tell you, COVID has not confused God. It is not limited. It is not quarantined his presence. God is not stuck in a house for 14 days because he'd been around a bunch of sick people. The presence of God still has promises that it's gonna fulfill. God doesn't have to wear a mask. Thank you, Jesus. God doesn't have to use hand sanitizer. God can show up where and when God wants to show up. And let me explain something. Though when God shows up, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. It's not even because we've positioned ourselves in the right places. It's because he has a promise and he's going to fulfill it. See, we get lost in this process on a regular basis and we make it harder on ourselves. Have you ever realized how almost impossible you make it for God to bless you? You ever thought about that? Whether it be through our criticism, our complaining, whether it be through our discouragement, we try, to, we try to make it almost impossible for God to bless us. But yet God still blesses us, doesn't he? It's almost like we lay the, the, the sacrifice at the altar kind of like they did for Elijah. They lay the sacrifice on the altar and Elijah says, just dump some water on it. Let's make it as impossible as it possibly can and God's still going to show up. You know why? Because God's the God that answers. God's the God that answers by fire. God's the God of the impossible. And, and what you can't do, he can do. You need to get a hold of that in your spirit because somebody has been walking around almost lost, almost like confused going, what are we supposed to do? And God's saying, you need to keep pursuing me because I've got some promises to fulfill. Watch this. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of quick history lesson, right? Not because you need it, but just because, let me just share this. The children of Israel, there was a promise upon Abraham. Let's go all the way back to Abraham that God was going to bless him, a man who was unable to have children, right? Does anybody know why Abraham was unable to have children? I'm not going to blame Sarah. 
But I'm going to blame Sarah. Why couldn't she have, why couldn't they have children? Anybody want to take a guess? Because Sarah was unable to, to what? Conceive. Pastor Tony, this is going to get a little bit weird here, but I see a whole lot of people sitting in the pews of your church, not just tonight, not just last night, but yesterday morning, and they have sat in the church pews on a, long, on a regular basis, and they've been unable to conceive. Now, I'm not talking about bring forth a baby. I'm talking about being unable to conceive that God wants to use your hands to lay on the sick. That God wants to use your voice to speak forth into dark places that your tongue is more dangerous than any key because it can open up any lock. That you're unable to conceive that God wants to use you and use your church to do, to do incredible things, not just in this building, but outside of these doors, in homes, in neighborhoods, down streets, downtowns, in schools. He, you're unable to conceive it, and the reason you can't conceive it is because that stuff just doesn't happen to people like us. See, when the reason that Sarah couldn't conceive is because she was trying to do it all alone. And that's why when the angel came and said, hey, hey listen, you're going to, and I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe it was Jesus that, that said these words to, you're going to have a child in your old age. And she giggled. Because to her, it was foolishness. It was nothing like, what? That's a false. That's an empty promise because she had tried all that she knew to try. And instead, she sat there. And so all of a sudden, we know that she gets pregnant. And, she's, and the promise is that there's going to be this great nation. And the, 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 the offspring is going to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. That's a lot of children. That's a lot of generations to come forth. But Abraham... They hid it in their heart and they believed in it. And when it started with just the one, you have to understand, it all starts with just one. And it begins to multiply from there. And, and if we can just see the one thing happen. See, so many times we get discouraged because the entirety of the promise hasn't happened instead of just maybe the beginning stages of it happening. The first son came forth and, and, and here's this promise of God. I can imagine when they first saw him, they're looking at the very face, the very blueprints of the promises of God. And they're like, wait a second, this is where it begins, but this is where it doesn't end. And, and it just kept on going. And even after Abraham had passed, and even though he, he didn't get to see the promise fulfilled, there was still this promise that he shared to his offspring saying, this promise is coming. This promise is going to happen. And it's from God. And if God made a promise he's going to see it come to pass and it may not necessarily be in the timeline that I want it to happen it may not be according to my watch and according to my, my my desires but it is according to God's desires it's according to his heart I just have to learn how to be faithful I just have to learn how to be obedient to what God's asking me to do and this promise begins to grow and it gets kind of, they go through some different detours. Can I tell you something? Has anybody ever in this, in this place ever hit a detour in your life? Like you ever been driving and you hit a detour? Did the detour change your destination? 
It may prolong the trip. It may take a little bit longer. It may, you may go in a different route, but the detour doesn't change your destination unless your destination wasn't that important to you. If a detour can stop you from reaching your destination, it was really a never, a never a destination. It was just a quick stop. But the destinations for our lives are not going to be derailed by the detours that we face. We'll go through what we have to go through. So the children of Israel go through famine and they go through becoming slaves and they go through watching children being murdered. But you watch this for a moment. This is, what, this is a word for the church. This is a word for us. Have you ever read Exodus chapter one, verses 12? And it says this, it says, because they were growing so much, because the promises of God were being fulfilled and they were, they were multiplying. It says that the children, the, 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 the Egyptians, they, they plot to kill them, to try to hinder them and, and harm them and limit them. And it says that they began to slaughter. They began to throw these children into the Nile to be eaten by, by crocodiles and to drown, Right. But here's the word I want to give you in Exodus chapter 1, verses 12. And it says, but the more that they were come against, the more that they were detoured, the more that happened against them, the more they multiplied. The more that they were oppressed, the more they expanded. Let me ask you this word in this due season. In all that is happening in the world around us, and as loud as the enemy is growling and as loud as the enemy is roaring, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If he has to seek whom he may devour, that means that there are people that he cannot devour. Are we in hiding and in fear or are we multiplying? Are we still growing? I mean, honestly, think about this. We were, the church was basically sent to a two to three to four month prayer time or sabbatical to hide in the presence of God. And God tried to lift a little bit of labor off us. But instead, we didn't get weary from work. We got weary from complaining. We got weary from fear. We got weary from everything else that should have never touched the church. We went into performance mode. We went into, we have to do this. We have to do this. We have to do this. I said a very bold statement and I probably will be uninvited to ever preach at Pastor Tony's church again. But I said a very bold statement. I said, honestly, if we, been, if we would have been equipping the church the way that we should have been equipping the church. We should have never had to go live stream. We would have had fathers and mothers step up and begin to lead their homes and begin to reach their neighborhoods. We don't need to leave. I'm all about, do not forsake the assembling of the brothers. I'm all about that. Don't We need each other. We need community. But we don't need a pastor necessarily to lead this home we have a priest that leads this home. And kids, we're going to pray right now. We're going to have communion right now. Listen, you want to be baptized? Go fill up the bathtub. Dad's going to dunk you today. And deacon mom is going to stand there and she'll give you a kiss on the cheek. She'll give you a little flower and she'll make you some cinnamon rolls. Could you imagine? That, is that not revival? Could you imagine what would have happened? 
If, if Pastor Tony would have heard stories going, listen, we're, we're sorry we missed the live stream, but God broke out. We were just praying, and, and all of a sudden, our eight-year-old daughter started singing a song, Jesus Loved Me, and then we sang Amazing Grace, and then it fell. And, and, and then my son started weeping. He's 11 years old, and he said, Dad, I just need to get right with God, and I want to be water baptized. And I, I baptized him in our bathtub, and man, we've just been praying all day long, and God's just been wrecking our home, Pastor Tony. See, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Is that going to be the statement of our life that no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens around us, no matter what happens to those amongst us, are we going to allow ourselves to be stopped? Are we going to continue to grow? It says that they got held into captivity. They got became slaves. And it got hard for them. Please hear me. It's not going to get easy. If we really want to say the words, come Lord Jesus, come, we better get ready for hell and high water. <laughs> Everybody wants the new heaven and the new earth, but nobody wants to go through revelations to get it. So they're sitting there and it's hard on them and they're crying out to God. They're crying out for mercy. They're crying out for grace. They're crying out, God, have compassion on us. We know the story about Moses and how he raised up. Now, you need to hear this for a moment. I wasn't going to go here, but I feel like this is in my heart and spirit. Remember when Moses is running from his identity? He's running from his calling. That's really what was going on for 40 years. Until the burning bush, Pastor Tony brought it, brought it up. So I'm just going to preach here for a couple of minutes. Do you remember he sees the burning bush? I'm going to take it a step further. I'm not going to correct anything Pastor Tony says. I'm just going to add point number two to what he said. It says the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. It sounds like a lot of our lives. We're on fire for Jesus, but we're not consumed by Jesus. We have a little bit of flames, but there's never any ashes of what God's done and he burned up in our lives. That means you can go to a revival like this and you can get fired up for a moment, but a week and, or two weeks from now, you're unchanged. Let me just take it a step further. If you knelt in front of the cross and gave your life to Jesus, but your life looks anything like it did before, you knelt at the wrong cross because there were three crosses, two of them had thieves, and you knelt on a cross in front of a thief and you got ripped off. Because Jesus, when you kneel in front of his cross and you kneel in front of him, everything in your life changes. The way you talk, the way you act, the way you think, the way you feel. I mean, you get convictions that you never had before in your life. You take a free mint and you're thinking, did I just steal? You go to a steakhouse and take a, a, a toothpick and you're like, I need to pay for this. It's amazing at what God does inside of you. But watch this for a moment. Moses goes to this burning bush and the, the voice speaks to him and he says, Moses, Moses. And, and he is it's captured by this moment. He's captured by this voice. He's captured by, he's intrigued by this fire. And he begins to walk towards it. And God speaks to him and he says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. And there's a couple of reasons why I believe that God 
tells us to take off our shoes, but I'm just going to give you one of them. One of the biggest reasons that God tells us to take off our shoes, to not walk into his presence is because he doesn't want you bringing into where he is, where you've been. You've walked through some things in your life. Don't bring where you walked through and what you've walked in into my presence because let me explain something. I don't want that in here. Your past, I can forgive you of it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep on reliving this past. I want you to separate yourself from the things that once separated you from me. So take off your shoes, Moses. I want you to take off the, the things, that the mud. I want you to take off the things that you've walked through and leave them at the door because I want to put some new things on you because you're going to have to learn how to walk again. So Moses goes in there and God says, I'm going to use you to deliver about 2.5 million people. Their voices have been heard. Like Pastor Tony says, when, when Moses says, but who should I say send, sends me? And, and, and he says, tell them that I am that I am. The healer I am. I am that healer. Tell him the savior I am. I am the savior. The deliverer I am. I am that deliverer. You know what's so crazy? The I am that I am is not necessarily he is what we need him to be. He is all that we'll never ever need him to be. And so here's this moment. And Moses goes out and God says, listen, I'm, I'm going to take these people out of captivity. And you're going to lead 2.5 million people out of the captivity of the strongest military force on the face of the earth. I don't know if you know this. At that time, the Egyptians were the strongest military force on the face of the earth. They had this reputation that, that if you fought them, I don't, I'm not trying to get into be brutal or gruesome or anything, but if you raised the sword in defense against the Egyptians, if they were coming to attack you and you showed up with your spears and your swords and your archers, they would not kill you immediately. They would disarm you. They would basically confine you and then they would find your children and your family and they would rip the skin off of them while they were alive and burn them in front of you to say hey listen let me just explain you thought you were strong and you are nothing and these men their hearts would fade in their chest and they would make them slaves so the what a lot of people would do when the Egyptians were coming in to invade them, the people would bring all of their weaponry and all of their jewels and all of their, 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 their valuables and they would lay it, lay it where they knew that the Egyptians would come and then they would go back and retreat and they would just basically say, we're your slaves. Don't harm us. Don't hurt us. We're just here. They were terrorists of the worst. And God was going to take one man who was not well-skilled against, I mean, he was probably a well-skilled warrior, but he wasn't well-skilled about fighting an entire nation. And God was going to use him not in, in violence, but God was going to begin to do the battling for them. And he was going to use this one man who had a stuttering problem. And I promise you, he didn't pick up a stutter in the Pharaoh's house. He picked it up and stutter in the wilderness while running from his true identity. 
And God says, I'm gonna use you to bring these 2.5 million people out of captivity so that the promise I made to a man by the name of Abraham can come to pass. That this multiplication, that this promise, I'm giving them a land, a land that there's, that's their own, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. So we know the story that God sent Moses and Moses went to the Pharaoh and all of these plagues happened and they literally escorted them out. They gave them millions and millions of dollars worth of jewelry, gold, just to hear, go. And the children of Israel, they cross over the Red Sea and they're walking towards the promises of God. And that's where we're gonna begin to read in Numbers chapter 13, verses one through three. And then we're gonna slide down to Numbers, seven, Numbers, Numbers 13, 17 through 33. So Numbers 13, one through three, then Numbers 17, 13, 17 through 33. It says, the Lord said to Moses, watch these words. This is one of the greatest prophets of God. Watch this for a moment. It says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am, what's that word say? Anybody here on Sunday? Was anybody here on Sunday? If you were here on Sunday, you remember what the word give means? Means to relinquish control, exchange ownership, or to let go. So what did we say? One of the rules of giving is you can only give something once because once you give it, it's no longer your own. Watch these words. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving. The promise, the provision, it's yours. I just need somebody to go get it. So it says, send some men to uh, explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each of the ancestral tribes, send one of its leaders. God's looking for leadership. How many of you know that? Because it takes true leaders to go after the promises of God. He says, send, give me one of the leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out. It seems pretty simple, right? Watch this. 12 men, go get the promises of the land that I'm giving to you. Very simple, right? Have you, have, have you ever played the game where you tell somebody in their ear and their job is to repeat what you told them in their ear to the next person and it goes around this circle and usually when it comes back to the initial or the original person, it's not at all what was said? You ever play that game? Or you try to repeat a story and it's not the same? God just simply said, give me 12 leaders to go get the land that I'm giving you. That's it, right? Watch what Moses in turn says to the children of Israel. Now Moses sent them out to explore Canaan. He said, go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees there or, is, or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. That doesn't sound like, hey, go get what God gave us. 
When did God ever say, go see if what I promise you and what I'm giving you is going to be easy, if it's going to be hard, if it's going to be worth it, if it's not going to be worth it, if it's going to be good or if it's not going to be good, if it's going to be desert or it's going to be a forest, if it's going to have good soil or bad soil. No, the problem is, is we try to make it as impossible for God to bless us as possible. He, Moses simply said, wait. Go see what we have to go through. Go see what it's going to be like. Go see if the people that we have to fight or to take the land. God never said anything that you are going to have to fight. They just walked out without raising a sword, but walking out with millions of dollars worth of gold without ever raising their hands. They were slaves and God blessed them. And he conquered, literally conquered the most, the number one military ranked army on the face of the earth. And now they're looking about, wait now, who are we going to have to go fight? Right now. Watch, it gets better. It says, it goes on and says, do your best to bring back some of the fruit, right? So they went and explored the land. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Everybody pay attention to this. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. Have you ever went to Walmart and said, I'm going to get some grapes. I'm going to need two men to help carry it out to my vehicle. (laughs) We're talking a cluster of grapes. Scientifically, a cluster of grapes has anywhere between 25 and 75, a roundabout number of grapes on that cluster. So you mean to tell me two men had to carry a, a cluster of 75 grapes at the most between two of them. Well, theologians will tell you that each grape weighed between three and five pounds. It was the size of a, of a medium-sized watermelon, each grape. Now, magnify, let's just say three pounds by 70 grapes. You got 210 pounds worth of grapes. And that has nothing to do with the land, that just is what is produced in the land. Here's the thing that I want to get into. Watch this. And it says, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. There they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. It's exactly what God said it was. Here's the fruit. Here's the proof. But the people who live there are very powerful. The cities are very are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak, which are giants, there. Then Caleb, one of the one of the ten or one of the twelve, he silenced the people before Moses and said, "We should go up and take possession of the land." He wasn't even in the conversation with Moses and God, but yet he knew the promise of God. And God said, "Just go up and get the land." He said, "We can just go get the land. Why don't we go do it? Don't worry about the walls. Don't worry about the warriors. Don't worry about." the weapons let's just go get what God promised but the men who had gone up with him and said we can't attack those people they're stronger than us and they spread out amongst the Israelites a bad report about the land that they explored they said the land that we explored listen to this because when you start walking in fear you begin to get confused and your statements begin to contradict each other it says it says The land that we went to explore devours those living in it. So therefore, if the land devours the people living in it, there shouldn't be any people that live there, correct? But it goes on and it says, and all the people that we saw there are of great size.
We even saw the Nephilim. This is very important. If you have children, if you have grandbabies, if you have great grandbabies, if you have hopes of having babies, this is very important, and here's why. We even saw the Nephilim there. The Nephilim are the kin or the cousins of Goliath. And if these people would have went in and destroyed these giants, David never would have had to raise up to fight a giant. The problem is, is we're too busy walking in fear. And the reason that we walk in fear and intimidation, we're going to have another generation that's going to have to win the battles that we were too afraid to fight. And it says we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. Did they ask them? No, they assumed my grandpa used to say something about assuming it's not a very good thing. Can't say that stuff in church. You thought it, so you have to be at the altar and repent. One of the greatest tragedies, listen to me, and we're going to go through this quickly tonight. One of the greatest tragedies that we will ever experience in our life. One of the greatest tragedies this year would be for you to stand at the edge of your destiny, but to be too afraid to step into all that God has for you. Let me say it again. One of the greatest tragedies this year would be for you to stand at the edge of your destiny, but to be too afraid to step into what God has for you. What are you afraid of? Well, I'm glad you asked. Afraid of what we have to leave? Afraid of what we have to face? And afraid of what we have to overcome? See, promises from God are not relying upon what other people do but what you do and what you allow God to do. Often the promises of God are, not atta- are attached to our pursuit of him through our daily obedience. Can I tell you that God's not looking for our productivity, but instead our instructability? See, there's, I have this little girl. Her name's Cameron. She's my middle daughter. And uh, she's 20 years old now. But when she, was, when she was a kid, she loved chocolate milk. Loved it. Loved it. And there was this one chocolate milk because she thought it was more biblical and spiritual called Promised Land. I don't know if you've ever had it. It's really good stuff. It flows with milk and honey. (laughs) But she loved that chocolate milk. And I would work and I would earn money. And then either my bride or I would go to the store and we made her a promise because she had weak bones. That the doctor said, get her to drink whole milk with lots of vitamin D. It'll strengthen her bones. And she didn't like milk. So he said, I don't care if you drink chocolate milk. So I made her a promise in that doctor's office that she would always have chocolate milk in the refrigerator. As her dad, I made her a promise. And there were times where she went to the refrigerator and there was no chocolate milk and dad went to Walmart. But I worked for it in order to provide. I provided so I could fulfill the promise. And there were times, Pastor Tony, that we'd be sitting on the couch and I could see the refrigerator from where I was sitting. And my little girl, she's so beautiful. And she's just, you know, when you have daughters, instantly you, you basically are owned. And she would look at me and she'd say, Daddy, do you love me? And I'd be like, baby girl, you know I love you with all my heart. And she was like, can I have some chocolate milk? And my rule was that she could have chocolate milk as much as she wanted. She didn't even have to ask for it. She just had to go get it. And she would say, Daddy, could I have some chocolate milk? And I'm like, baby, absolutely. You can have some, go get you some chocolate milk. You know you don't have to ask. And she was like, 
will you go get me some? She wasn't asking if she, she wasn't asking permission. She was asking me to go get it, right? And so because I'm such the good dad that I am, I would go and we, we were probably a little bit strange, but we put a couple little ice cubes in it, make it real cold. And we, we put the chocolate milk and I brought that chocolate milk and I sat right next to her on the couch. Are you grossing out? It's like, oh, <laughs> you were like, oh God, he puts ice in his milk. This boy is, he's never preaching to my church again. Heresy. But the good dad that I am, I'd come sit down next to her and I'd drink the chocolate milk. And she'd be like, but dad, that's my milk. It was your milk. Until you were too lazy to go get what I provided for and what I promised. You want me to do everything for you. And the rule is, if you're not willing to do it yourself, what I've asked you to do, then you're not willing to earn what I promised you. And you don't get it. What am I talking about? What are the promises that God has on your life and you, you are refusing to? I mean, I've met people during this whole thing. They're like, I need a job. Oh God, I need a job. I've been laid off. I, I need a job. And I'm like, have you filled out a resume? Have you filled out an application? I'm just praying. Praying for what? The rapture? Because you ain't gonna get a job sitting there doing nothing. You've got to get up and you've got to begin to move in the promises that God made you because, and that's where we are in the church. We are so busy just sitting back going, well, I'm just being patient. No, you're being lazy. Worship is not about a worship team on a stage. Worship is a participation that it don't matter what's on the screen, what's being sung. It's about God. I've got to let you know how valuable and how worthy and how important you are to me. And I don't care if anybody else sings. I'm going to sing. I don't care what's preached. I'm going to that altar and I'm going to stay there until I get up different. Because there's promises on my life and those promises are not going to be dictated by what everybody else does. See, this promise that God made to the children of Israel was not about stepping out of an old life. This promise that God made to us as his children was not just about stepping out of an old life, but entering in, abiding in, and thriving in this new life. Listen to all the things that God did. Watch this. Promises from God. God planned the escape. He picked the leader. He parted the obstacles. He provided for the people. He prepared the place. He proved his promise. And guess what the people did? They panicked and said, we can't do this. The children of Israel had stepped out of the captivity and the authority of Egypt. And now they were being taught how to walk under the authority of God. But see, we often view freedom and authority as opposing concepts. But the Bible teaches us that true freedom is found under authority, not without it. The children of Israel didn't wake up and eat what they wanted to eat or drink what they wanted to drink. They were slaves. They worked and they ate whatever was given them. They had no choice. But all of a sudden they got a little bit of freedom and they're like, wait a second, I got the choice now and I don't feel like dying today. No, let's go back and be slaves. Let's go back. And we look and we pull apart and we pry apart and we preach apart these slaves 
But I got to preach to you just a couple more minutes on this. See, they were born in captivity. Did you know that every person, every person that came out of Egypt that day, including Moses, was born in Egypt? They knew absolutely no other way. They were, they were ingrained. They were programmed. That's all they knew is how to be slaves. That's all they knew. And just because they were free doesn't mean that their thinking changed. You need to hear this for a moment. I was in Colorado preaching at a camp at Cedar Ridge, Pastor Tony, and, and it was on Tuesday night, and you know, you know the routine, Monday night salvation, Tuesday night, let's just maybe go a little bit further, further Wednesday, maybe we could talk about the Holy Spirit, and, and then Friday, we gotta, or Thursday, we gotta get them filled with the Holy Spirit, and we gotta get them called into ministry. Just a rule, or we never get invited back. <laughs> on Tuesday night, I felt like God was wanting to heal. And so I gave this call, for God to heal. Well, my little girl told me that there was a kid whose name was Sean and he was born blind, 17 years old, born blind. And he came up to the altar and he's just staying. When everybody else got dismissed after an altar about 45 minutes, God did some incredible things. But there was about 18 people that were at this altar, including this completely blind kid named Sean. And all of a sudden he starts screaming. I mean screaming. And he's going, I can see. He could care less if anybody else, what they thought. He's like, I can see. And he's like walking up and touching things. And he's like, I can see. I can see. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then people came in back into the sanctuary, eating their nachos and then praying. And we went to another service. It was awesome. You get somebody healed and instantly nachos are part of the service. But... That next day, I, I wanted to meet Sean with all the chaos that went on that night. I didn't get to sit down and talk to him. So I, I, I find Sean and I see him and the people are just standing around talking to him. And, and the DYD, uh, Lee Terry, he says, Jamie, you got to meet Sean. And this is a kid that was healed last night. I'm like, oh my goodness, I want to meet him. And so I walked up to him and I said, hey, you're Sean. And he says, yeah. He, he, and I put my hand out like this and he went, what are you doing? And I was like, I was just going to shake your hand. And he was like, oh, I've never seen that before. I'm like, see, watch this for a moment. Do you know that a world that has never seen gestures of love or gestures of kindness or gestures of true friendship, they walk into church and we hug them and they're like, hey, like you got some hand sanitizer to put all over my body? They don't know how to receive love because in the world that they came from, they had to earn it. They had to be a certain way. They had to act a certain way. They had to do certain things in order to receive love or friendship. And they're not used to just these kind gestures. They've never seen it before. And so they don't quite respond to it. And so I'm talking to Sean and I'm like, man, talk to me. What's going on? And he's closing his eyes. I mean, he's literally like just talking to me with his eyes closed. And I'm thinking, because I'm like instantly an eye doctor, it's sunny. It's probably really bright. He's probably getting a headache. And I said, Sean, do we need to go inside? Is it too bright out here? And he was like, Pastor Jamie, I'm so sorry. 
It's just habit. He says, see, for 17 years, I just kept my eyes closed. You know what I didn't do? I didn't just like, hey, dummy. Like, you don't want the healing? Let's just take that back. Poke your eyes out. I didn't do that. They're like, woo. But don't we do that in church? Somebody comes to service and they give their life to Jesus. They pray. And then all of a sudden, they, they've been living in addictions. They've been living in anger. They've been living in depression. And that's what they were born. It's just forever. That's just been their habit. That's their go-to. And we as a church are like, hey, dummy, don't you know what God did? Don't you? You're wasting God's grace. You're wasting God's mercy. You're supposed to be perfect now. And what happens is people get lost in this process. What process am I talking about real quick? Watch this. Here's a great big S right here. Picture, picture a great big S and a great big N. Over there, you've got a great big H and you've got a great big M. You know what the biggest problem in church? We have an eye infection. And I'm talking the eye infection is this. See, we were born, I was in the middle of sin. And I was born here. I knew how to be a good sinner. Lying became, it was natural. It was my natural language, cheating, stealing, just hatred and murder in my heart and lust. It came natural. But all of a sudden I get saved. And it's an easy tendency to say, wait a second, I don't know how to live out here. I don't know how to live like this. I know how to live here. And there's this process from sin where I was once in the middle of for me to now learn how to be in the middle of him. See, where I am will determine who I am. It will determine what I have. It will determine what we can expect to receive. And when I'm in the middle of sin, I have keys of sin that open up doors of sin in my life. But Jesus didn't die on a cross to leave me in the middle of sin. When the Father sent Jesus, it wasn't to condemn me. It wasn't just to forgive me. It wasn't just to heal or deliver me. No, Jesus came to create a way so that I could be brought back into relationship with the Father. Jesus was sent to not just get me out of the middle of sin, but to make a way so that now I could be in the middle of him. But there's this process that we get stuck, we get weary, we get worn out, and it's almost like this tug of war in our souls and our spirits. Should we be afraid? Should we not be afraid? What's going on? And we're constantly being tossed to and fro, and we get exhausted, and we get weary. What should we believe? What should we, what should we think? But see, When we're in sin, we have these keys that open up doors of sin. See, for me, my sins, drugs and pornography and depression. And the more that I dwelt in sin, the deeper in sin I got. And I had these keys that could open up doors of sin, greater sins in my life. Right? And when I'm in him, he gives us some keys also. Keys to grace, keys to mercy, Keys to open up doors of love. Keys of blessing. 
access things that we don't deserve. And we have keys for the places that we live and where we dwell, but we also have keys for the places that we overcome. And, and I want you to hear this for a moment because some of the promises in your life are not just for you, but for the ones that you're around. See, when I got saved, like I was totally good with like, I'm done. I'm done with drugs. I'm done with alcohol. I'm done, done with anger. I'm done with depression. I'm done with pornography. I'm done with it all. Done. And I was totally good with living for Jesus. But then about three months after, God had done some radical things in my life. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. There was a time where I got tempted to go back into porn on, on, on internet and just to tell you this story, I went to click in something and I felt like the presence of God hit my hand and he says, I forgave you once and I got you out once. I can't guarantee I'm able to get you out again. And a fear hit me. I'm talking about a fear hit me and I destroyed my computer. I beat the mess out of that computer. I mean, I went three years without TV in our house because I was so afraid to lose what God had done. Watch this for a moment. Three months after this, Pastor Tony, my pastor comes up and he says, Jamie, I want you to share on a Sunday morning all that God's delivered you from. And I'm like, my mom's here. (laughs) My mom sits on the second row. She's an intercessor and she will be screaming in tongues. My mother-in-law's here. My father-in-law is here. My brother-in-law's on staff here. My sister comes here. My niece, my kids. I can't do it, pastor. And he's like, then what's God done in your life? He'll never do through your life. Long story short, I get up and testify. And here's what I, I get real with them. But, Here's what I tell you. When we come out of sin, we throw the keys down. I'm telling you to go get your keys of sin back. What? Why would a bald evangelist from Colorado tell you to go get your keys of sin back? Because the same keys that got you out of, that got you into sin are also the same keys that help other people get out of the same sins. You show me somebody that's been set free from depression and I'll show you somebody that knows the key and has the key to the lock of depression. You show me somebody that's been healed of cancer and I'll show you the devil's too dumb to change the locks. And what God's done in you, he can also do through you into somebody else's life. Why? What are you talking about? I talked the other day about all in. Every single one of us had got, have had God do something tremendous in our life. Maybe you've never been addicted. Maybe you've never been depressed. But God's done something supernatural in your life. And God's going to put you around other people. that it, it, they, they, They've gone through it. Or they are going through it. And God's needing you because this is what happens. Is we try to get out of sin. And God sets us free. And, and discipleship is not just saying, hey, listen, do as I say. But it's somebody that said, hey, listen, God's done this in my life. Let me show you the way. Let me walk with you through the process. Let me make sure you don't get go back. Listen, you can't go back to sin. Why? Because you're too important. Because there's a call of God on your life. Listen, I know you're weary. Let me just carry you for a little bit. Hey, 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 hey Jake, can you help me carry him? Because he's too valuable. And God's done too much. And this is not the end of his story. That's just the beginning. 
We got to get him to him. See, when we get, what gets us from sin to him is being obedient to what he says. And when we continue to listen, if we'll continue to listen and obey the one who gets us out of captivity, he will also keep us from going back into captivity and use us to help other people to get out as well. Obeying God's plan is not as hard as it makes it. We make it out to be, but how are you to be obedient when you are, when, 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 when you are distracted by other things, discouraged from the past experience and drained from the journey? See, we feel like the greatest reason that we cannot, or I feel like the greatest reason that we can't see the miracles that we so desperately need in our lives accomplished is not because we have a lack of faith but instead we have an abundance of disappointment and discouragement combined with exhaustion and weakness it's not that we're doubting God see these spies were too distracted by the walls the weapons and the warriors walls to discourage them weapons to defeat them and warriors to destroy them they saw the rewards but the opposition and the obstacle became their focus which downsized their faith what God was asking them to do was impossible for them they saw the size of what they had to overcome and they compared it to the size of their own abilities and fear and insecurity overwhelmed them and ultimately stopped them they did not say God can't do this they said we can't do this They're bigger than us. They didn't say they're bigger than God. They're bigger than us. See, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying this. That is where obedience comes in. Remember what he promised. Obey, obey what he said to do and watch him work. Obedience is birthed out of submission and what we submit to, we will naturally obey and serve. Obedience can no longer be our option. It must become our obsession. And that's the Israelites' flaw. And I believe it's the flaw of the church today. And I'm not knocking the beloved. Listen, I will never, I will never mock the bride of Christ. You want to see God get angry. You touch his bride. But the flaw that I'm seeing is the same flaw that I see in the children of Israel. And here's what I mean. Do you remember when Moses is up in the mountain? He's meeting with God and the mountain is on fire. I mean, you talk about um, a holy moment to see your leader meeting face to face with God and the mountain's on fire. And it's rumbling. You can almost hear the voice of God thundering. And it says that the children of Israel found a leader who was Aaron. And they said, make us a God in whom we can see. And he made a God. Does anybody remember what he made? What did he make? A golden what? Calf. Do you know what they named him? Yahweh. The most holy name of God. See, they didn't create an image of God and their own God. They made an image of God in what they thought God looked like. Or a character 
or a nature of God. And they formed a calf, right? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why didn't they form a lion? How about a bear? Something that's more impressive, something that's more aggressive, something that's powerful, right? Why a cow? Because you have to get into the understanding of that culture. The cow was the main domestic animal that served people. So their image of God was that he was there to serve them and not they were there to serve him. And that is why when you see Joshua saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God is not here to serve us. We are serving him. And either you're going to make a decision. Now hear me. You have to make a conscious decision. Somebody else cannot decide for you to get out of sin and for you to stay out of sin. That is not somebody else's fault if you backslide or if you turn your back on God. See, I'm going to say a very bold statement. I'm closing here, but I'm going to say a very bold statement. And that statement is this. Homosexuality, hatred, racism, murder, rape. Those things don't send people to hell. You know what sends people to hell? One thing, rejecting what Jesus did on the cross, therefore rejecting him as savior. No matter what sin has ensnared you, it is not a particular sin that sends people to hell. It is one thing, it is rejecting him as a savior, therefore you cannot be atoned for, therefore your price cannot be paid, and therefore you cannot be paroled out of hell. And so therefore... And here's my proof. Remember, remember it says that we're gonna stand before God and he's gonna say one of two things. He's gonna say, depart from me, wretched worker of iniquity. I never knew you. How does God not know us? He knows the hair on our head. He knows the day we were born. He knows everything about us. How does he not know us? Well, the scripture says this. It says that God knows no sin. So therefore, if we never allow Jesus to become the atonement. If we never accept him as Lord and as Savior and we celebrate him by dedicating our life and surrendering our life to him, we are now in sin. Therefore, God is not rejecting Jamie. He's rejecting what I am in and God knows no sin. But on the other hand, he will say to others, he will say, well done, good and faithful Servant, have you ever noticed that that's singular, not plural? He's not talking to us as individuals. He's talking to one person. He said, depart from me, wretched workers of iniquity. I never knew you, but well done, good and faithful servant. Who's he talking to? If I'm in him, who's he talking to? The only one that is worthy to step foot into heaven. And when I am in him, it says in John chapter 3, verses 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through. He is the way, the truth, and the. No one comes to the father except through. I am the. 
going to get to heaven. I've got to fight my way through this process. No matter how much that is natural, I've got to. See, we make a conscious decision, and please hear me. The Bible says, it says, flee all these things. Flee immorality and lust. Flee these things and pursue righteousness. Here's how you begin to walk away from sin and walk towards him. Every day, just make a decision. I'm going to step closer and I'm going to step closer through prayer and through devotion. Not because of my pastor, not because of the worship team, not because of church, not because of who's in the president or who's the president or is in the White House. What, what, what the Democrats or the, the, the politicians or Republicans are doing. Not because of what I'm getting paid, but every day I'm going to make a conscious decision through prayer and devotion and obedience to step further and further closer to Jesus. And with every step closer I make to Jesus is a step further I make away from the way I used to be. And all of a sudden you are in him and you're living in him because when you give your life to Jesus, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You are in him. But now you have to choose to stay in him and you cannot allow the process to destroy you. There's promises. If I can get the worship team to come on up. See, I want to give you three quick keys or one key that opens up three doors. One key that opens up three doors, and that, that key is the key of obedience. Did you know that your obedience to the things of God will open up things in your life that you never thought possible? Here's what I mean. Obeying God. Obeying God is what changes everything. And the first door that you, the key of obedience opens up in your life is obedience will open up God's purpose for your life. It will open up God's purpose for your life. Obeying God will position us where we need to be when we need to be there. The second door that the key of our obedience will open up in our life is obedience will open up God's provision in our life. God will not bring us to places where he will not keep us. Think about this, that when you doubt God's ability to provide for you, I believe that there's somebody in this room that has been doubting whether or not God can provide for you, whether or not God can meet your needs. See, there were 2.5 million Israelites that left Egypt and wandered through the desert. If each person got two pounds of food and four pints of water, 64 ounces a day to drink and eat, that would require 2,250 tons or 4.5 million pounds of food and 1.25 million gallons of water per day. But they were not in the wilderness for just one day. They were in the wilderness for 40 years or 14,609 days. And over 40 years, it would require 33 million tons or 66 billion pounds of food and 18 billion gallons of water just to sustain the people in the desert, just to take care of the people in the process. And we feel like God can't meet our needs, that God can't provide for our lives when we will just simply obey God. I can tell you, church, I can stand here. I guarantee Pastor Tony can tell you stories as on the road. When we are preachers of the road, we live and breathe and die. We pay our food, we pay our food bills, our mortgage for, from offerings that come in. There are times where I just simply said, God, I'm not holding a cardboard sign any longer that says we'll preach for food. 
There have been times where God's told me to give more than I received in an offering to a missionary. God told me to give a check away at a camp and it was the only income. I needed $1,750. God told me to give a week's worth of camps and two Sunday morning services away to a missionary. And I said, God, and he said, if you don't give it away, it's not going to be enough. I said, but God, you know our needs. And he said, I do know your needs. And if you don't give it away, it's not going to be enough. I sowed it. Missionary literally argued with me and said, Jamie, you can't do this. You can't give this, this, this all. And I said, I'm giving you everything. I have to be obedient. I get on a plane from Anchorage, Alaska to Seattle, flying from Seattle to Atlanta. I was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time. I was getting on a plane from uh, Atlanta to Fayetteville. It was one seat on each side of the plane, very small plane. And Pastor Tony, I don't know if you've ever ever been there. I was terrified, not because I was afraid that Shelly was going to beat me up or something. She might. But I was terrified to be gone for 13 days and have absolutely no money to bring home to pay our bills. I was already asking her to sacrifice her time with me. She was raising basically two girls by herself. And I was terrified. How am I going to tell Shelly that I gave everything we earned on this trip away? And I'm sitting there and there's this older lady sitting on the aisle seat just across from me. And she keeps on looking at me. And so it was making me nervous. So I grabbed my Bible and I'm going to scare her off by reading my Bible. <laughs> just being honest. I'm just going to be honest. And I'm going to read my Bible. And all of a sudden she goes, I knew it. You're a preacher. She said, I have a check for you. She said, I'm a missionary to Trinidad and Tobago. I've been raising money for orphanages. And we over exceeded our income. And the Lord, and I was excited because we had more than the budget needed. And she said, the Lord told me to write three checks. And she said, this is my last flight. And the Lord told me that I would have given all three checks away before the end of the day. And she said, this is my last flight. She said, I have a check for you. Long story short, she hands me the check. I put it in my pocket and think nothing of it. I needed $1,750. I gave away the offering on a Wednesday night in Anchorage, Alaska at 7.07 p.m. And I'm sitting on this plane and we pray together, we cry together, we laugh together. Incredible woman of God. I get home, not even thinking about it, and I put the check on the counter. And Shelly looks at the check and she goes, oh my gosh, that's exactly what we need. I said, what are we talking about? And I opened up the check, it was for $1,750. And she goes, that's really strange. And I said, why? And she goes, on the memo she put New York City and she put the exact date that she wrote the check. And it was 11.07. And in New York City, 11.07 is 7.07 in Anchorage on the exact day that I dropped the check into the, or I dropped our offering in. At the moment I let go of what was in my hand, God let go in his hands and God's hands are bigger, aren't they? I've, I've rolled up. I didn't have money for a gas to go to the airport, Pastor Tony. And I lifted up my garage door the garage door broke and didn't even have money to pay for the garage door lifted up the garage door saw something fly by me it was a hundred dollar bill and six more of them were taped to the garage door nobody knew where we lived I can tell you story after story after story of how God's come in because when you're obedient to God God will open up provision in his life in your life the third one and I'm done and I went long forgive me but the third one is this obedience will open up God's power through your life. 
The spies brought back proof. They brought back the fruit. Isn't that what it's about? We'll go to an altar and get filled with the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, but we're not fulfilling the purpose or the, or the promise of what God's given us. The promise was not that God said, hey, I'm going to give you some fruit. He said, I'm going to give you the land. And they went with shears instead of coming, or they came back with grapes instead of with the promise. And 10 of the spies lost sight of the promise of the provision because of the size of the opposition. And they took God out of the equation, which left them unable to overcome those things that were bigger than them. The spies' problems was they kept on seeing how small they were instead of seeing how big God was. They lost sight that they had walked amongst giants for 40 days. I want you to hear this, church. They walked amongst giants for 40 days. Do you not think that the giants saw them taking their fruit? You don't think the giants saw them harvesting their stuff? But who was the number one military-ranked army? The Egyptians. Who were the giants terrified? The Egyptians. And who overcame the Egyptians? The Israelites. And if God sent 12 men how small did the giants feel in the eyes of their God saying they only sent 12 people to conquer us I believe with everything inside of me Alicia that those 12 men could have chased those giants out of the land and David never would have had to fight a Goliath but they were too afraid because they kept looking at what they were able to do instead of what God was able to do they didn't partner their abilities and their promises with God's abilities and God's promises what are you talking about the greatest tragedy that we that could happen this year is us to be at the edge of our destiny. Did you know that before you were born, God knew 2020 was going to be a year of great trials? And I believe that Paul and Moses and David and Peter and Elijah and Elisha are screaming in the heavens going, let me go. Send me back. Let me be a part of this end time revival. Let me be a part of this end time harvest. And God's saying, I've got the right people in position. If we would just realize what God's able to do and the power that's upon our lives, we would chase hell with a squirt gun filled with anointing oil. you to stand up all over this place Pastor Tony can I just I ask this question through you to your congregation why do we keep on trying to accomplish the things of God without God's power why do we keep on trying to accomplish all that God's promised us without him. Why did God tell you to plant this church? To reach a few dozen people? He gave you a big vision. Because he, he gave you a big heart before you had ever, ever had a big vision. And he took you off a road where you were going to preach to hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people. And he didn't say, hey, listen, I just want you to reach 
the people in this church and the people that will show up. No, you and I were driving around this city and you can sense the passion that drips off of you for not just this area, but on this side of the bridge, but on that side of the bridge, in other communities, all over this area. Do you remember when he told you, listen, Tony, and I believe it was when you were just going, God, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And it wasn't what you were going, you were thinking he was going to say. He showed me a picture of 40,000 Easter eggs. Babies crawling out of control. He didn't just tell you to reach those that would come, but he said, go and get those. You're an evangelist by call. You're a pastor by trade. you need pastor tony you don't need another building you don't need new paint you don't need new sound equipment you know what you need you need some people maybe 16 others that will say i'll go with you let's go get this land let's go get this land let's not lose a generation waiting for those that doubt to die. Let's see a generation saved because us, we are willing to go. Father, I preached what you told me to preach. I did what you told me to do. I said what you told me to say to the best of my ability. And God, I ask for your forgiveness first and foremost if I went too long. But God, I'm so passionate about revival breaking out, not just for a set of services, not so that I get invited back, not so that people tweet great things, but God, so that lives start being changed. A lot further past when services end, but revival continues to burn. God, I'm asking that you would begin to release that Caleb call, that Caleb vision that Caleb passion, but more importantly, that Caleb obedience that says, let's go. I know I saw the same giants. I say it, saw the same walls. I saw the same obstacles, but let's go get what God's given us. Let's go get the chocolate milk God's provided for us. We don't need him to have to go do everything. He'll go with us. We just have to be obedient. He saved me from sin to not just spend eternity in him by myself, but to bring as many people with me as possible. What promises have you been waiting for, church? What promises are still alive? What promises do you need to be reminded of in your life tonight? What promises for your marriage? What promise for your, for, your, for, for your future spouse? What promise for your future family? What promise for your children? What promise for your health? What promise for your body? What promise for ministries? Maybe been forgotten. We need to remember. We need the power of God to revisit us in a way tonight. 
that it begins to cause us to remember that those promises are going to come to pass. So here's where we're going to go with this altar real quick. There's some people in this room that you're still stuck in sin. Still stuck. Yeah, you've come out to get forgiven, but you found yourself, keep on running back. Keep on getting bound. Keep on getting stuck. You turned your back on grace. You turned your back on mercy. And tonight, you're saying, I'm tired of being stuck. I want out. I want out of sin. I want out. I want out. I'm tired of, of, of being bound. I'm tired of being a slave to sin. I'm tired of that captivity. I'm not going back to the Egypts of my life. I want to be set free. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You're in this room and you know you are still chained and you know you're still bound and you know that God has so much more planned for your life than what you've been allowing Him to do. You've made it impossible or tried to make it impossible for Him to bless you. But Jesus is saying, you're, I'm not done yet. You're not too far gone. And I believe with everything inside in the heavens right now, there's a sound of keys shaking and he's got the key to your cage. He's got the keys to your shackles, the keys to your bondage. And he's coming to open them up if you're willing to let him. 